House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Joe Goldberg is on the sidelines here. What's going on, Joe? I'm on the sidelines, but I'm loving it. Spring is in the air in the suburbs of Chicago. It's just, yeah. it's a great day. I almost yeah. want to wash my car, but that means I know it's going to rain over the weekend. Yeah, don't months. wash your car. The yeah. minute you wash that thing, comes the rain and the mud. They think it's a cliche, oh, no, but you know, we all know it happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's day. why you leave your car dirty all year. <laughs> yes, yes. It never rains. I caused the drought. Is that what, you, that what it is? <laughs> It's always your fault. Yeah. Talk to my wife. Okay, now let's get into it today. We've got another great week, and uh, today's another great author, a New York Times number one international best-selling author, and he's got uh, so many good good books out. And I see that he's been translated into forty-one languages, and he's uh, what twenty-five million copies in fifty-two countries. So he's uh, he's like a bestseller, you know. It's like uh, somewhere in the world, every thirty seconds, someone is buying a Steve Barry book. He's almost like you, yeah, just a, just a few more than you and me combined. I think just a few yeah, more, just by, a few. Well, like twenty-five million. <laughs> Steve Barry, thank you for being on the show. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. When I read your bio, right away, I think. Um, that in itself must put a tremendous amount of um, pressure on you, in a way, when you're when you're sitting down writing your next book. Well, you, you not, you'd be surprised. It really doesn't put as much as you think, because you're always wanting to write your best book. You always want to write the best you can. You always want to put forward the best you can. And each effort should be better than the effort before. So it really... The fact of the past success is wonderful. You you pinch yourself and you know and say it's, it's great. You know, only in America, it's a wonderful thing to be able to to, to go from nothing to that. But uh, you're not unmindful of the fact that you have to keep turning out a good product. And some people may not like your next book. Some people think you know, have opinions on it. But if, if you did your best and you put your best in it, and I and I put my best into everything I do. I, it's the best I can do. It may not be great. It may not be enough, but it's the best I can do. And that's that's all that really counts. How do you keep it fresh in a sense that not only have you got a lot of standalones, you, you've got a lot of, um, you know, you, you also do a series, you know, let's say with the same, same main character or two in it. How, how do you keep that going so that people still find interest in it. Yeah, I have I have five standalone novels and then 17 in the Cotton Malone series and it is a challenge that I won't I won't say that's not a challenge because after 22 novels, you know, you you put characters in pretty much every situation you can think of. The thing that keeps it fresh for me because the trick to writing a series is that every book in the series has to be the same but different. Same but different. That's a tall order. How is it the same? Well, it's action, history, secrets, conspiracies. That's, that's my bread and butter in every one of my books. I always have those elements in every book. How is it different? Well, we have a different antagonist. We have a different thing from history, that thing from history in the past that's real, that still matters today. And we have a different 
still matters today as well. So you get these different elements combined with the similar elements, and that's how you keep the, the books going forward. And it's a, it's a trick. You don't want to be same, same, or different, different. You want to be the same but different. And I try to find things from the past, things that you don't know anything about, but things I hope you'll know, want to know more about. And I have to also guess what you're going to find interesting two years from now, because I'm two years ahead of you. So luckily, over the last 20 years, I've guessed okay. I've made some pretty good guesses, and, I've, I'm, and I'm okay, I think, for the next three years or so. We'll see what happens after that. Steve, when you... Talk about those elements of a series, which I was jotting down in my notes. People know I always take notes when I'm interviewing people. And I say, what makes a series is, do you start with your historical element or your character? Because your Cotton Malone has been around for a while. Is he develop? He develops over time. He does. I'm assuming you. And so you start with how you want him to change, or do you start with I have a story that I want him to change in? But it's simultaneous, actually, because... And, and readers should not be put off of the fact there's 17 Cotton Malones. I write them episodic, so you can pick them up anywhere in the series you want. You don't have to have read the previous books to know what's going on in those. So this, it's much more episodic, where you can come in and, and, and jump in wherever you want to jump in. Um, the thing is, is that in every one of the Cotton Malone books, I explore an aspect of Cotton's personality that I've never explored before. So that's how it makes each book different, too, because I'm dealing with a new aspect of his personality, something we've not gone into. And that's how the character grows and develops, because we learn more about him with each book as we explore these character traits in there. And that is is essential element. But I must have that thing from the past, what I call the ooh factor, the thing you kind of go ooh about, like, you know, Charlemagne or the Amber Room or the Templars, uh, Romanoffs. These are things that you kind of go like, ooh. And so I, I look for these ooh factors, I call it, from the past. This something from the past, something that happened, something significant. Um, in the new book that's out right now, The Last Kingdom, it's something that happened in the 1880s with Ludwig II of Bavaria. But then that thing still has to matter today. It still has to be relevant today. Who cares what happened in 1883? Who cares about any of that stuff? It happened so long ago. Well, it has to still matter today, and that's what I call the so what. So I need the ooh factor and the so what. And then I also need that aspect of Cotton's personality that I'm going to explore. I need all three of these before I have a novel, before I can start writing a book. I guess... When you get to the, when you're talking about the ooh factor or the so what, in a way, your character growth of, let's say, in this particular case of Malone is really coming from those two factors. Well, it springs out of that because whatever that character trait I'm going to explore is certainly going to relate to what's going on with those two things. Yes, they all have to come together. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense. Um, and so I, you know, each one has that aspect of it. And, and I like that because the Cotton Malone of the Templar legacy, where he was created in 2006, and the Cotton Malone of the Last Kingdom of 2023 is a different guy. He's changed a lot over the years. He's, you know, a lot's happened to him and a lot's gone on and you know him better and he knows himself better. So in the new book here, it just came out on February 21st here, um, and it's The Last Kingdom. Tell us what the basic premise of this book is. 
Well, it deals with two of my favorite things. One is Bavaria. I love Bavaria. I love everything about that locale. I've been there many times. There are three marvelous castles there, Harem Kimse, Linderhof, and Schweinstein. And they are magical places. And they were built by my second favorite thing, which is Ludwig II of Bavaria, who was king from 1863 to 1886. He was a, a fascinating individual. If I ever get to write a pure historical novel set completely in the past, I would love to do a novel on his life. A fascinating guy. As I said, he built the three castles. But he also has been called Mad King Ludwig, and I don't really like that term very much because he really wasn't mad. He was troubled. He was probably, we would call today, chronically depressed or maybe bipolar. We would treat him with medications and therapy today. But in the mid-19th century, that, wasn't, that didn't exist. So he fell deeper and deeper into a delusional state, and he truly did go deep deep down. He wanted to be a king in a mythical sense, like a Wagner opera, which he adored. He wanted to be a king in the medieval sense, where he could do what he wanted, feel what he wanted, live like he wanted. He didn't want to hurt anybody or harm anybody. That was not his nature. He just wanted to be this mythical king. And he actually sent a man around the world to find him a new kingdom. This is a historical fact. And the guy traveled all over everywhere looking for a new kingdom for Ludwig II. Now, in the novel, in the, I mean, in real life, they never found it. But in the novel, they do. And now, Germany, the United States, and China are all after that last kingdom, but for three entirely different reasons. And Cotton Malone gets caught up in that intrigue. Steve, let me ask you a question and, and put these two things together. You say you're looking for something that the reader would find relevant today in, say, the Bavaria story. Um, and, you're, and you've changed cotton over time. Hmm? Are there themes of character and themes of then versus now that you're trying to you know, mimic or show today that you know, this is still relevant? These things of a crazy king back then are still relevant today? Well, not, not that aspect, but like the last kingdom. I can't say what it is because it will give away a surprise in the novel, but it's very relevant today, extremely relevant today where this last kingdom is, and why Germany and China and the United States all want it now. And it's so, yes, what I'm trying to show is not a then and now and, 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 and what was then maybe should be now or whatever. No, I'm saying something happened in 1883 that is relatively meaningless at the time, but today... It means a whole lot, a whole lot. And that's where I take that something from the past and I weave a modern-day thriller around that something. So you learn about the past, but you also are engaged in a modern-day thriller here in the present uh, together. And the fancy name they call that is an international suspense thriller is what they call it. So how, how do you find the ooh factor or the, the thing that happened in history that works well enough for you to decide well i'm gonna i'm gonna write about this like is there some local some sort of place that you just fall into or you hear about it or what what is it how does it go for you boy it's tough it's really tough because if you go looking for it you will never ever find it you will never find it it hides it eludes it's very good at staying away from you the trick is to be where it finds you. That's the trick. 
For me, it's been traveling, being in places. In this case, I was in Germany, and a lady was showing me around, and she was telling me some stuff, and she just made an off-the-cuff remark that was pretty, perfectly normal and common for her, and it didn't need, you know, she was just perfectly fine because she knew all about it. And I go, whoa, 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 back up. <laughs> Tell me what you just said again. And when she did, I realized I had a novel. Uh, this has happened on more than one occasion for me. I would say of the 22 ideas, I'd say 17 or 18 came that way, is how they came. Uh, I was at an event one night. It was late, 11 o'clock. I was tired. I wanted to go to bed. I'd had enough for the day. And um, the gentleman who was running the event asked me if I'd ever heard of a man named Kamal Salibi. And I said, never heard of him. He told me about him and the Alexandria link. My fifth novel was born. So you, you have to be where that idea finds you. And I've been just very fortunate to be in places where they find you. That's really interesting. And I, when I read your characters, I get the sense that you like your characters, even the bad ones. Am I misinterpreting? Oh, no, no. I love the bad guys are even almost more fun. What makes them fun? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of fun with the bad guys because they can pretty much do whatever they want, you know, and they have no moral compass and... Even a few of them are amoral. They have no no value system whatsoever. So they're fun to develop and fun to put together. No, I, I enjoy them very much so. But I like Cotton, too. I love Cotton. I love Cassiopeia. I love, I love those characters. They, they've become a part of me for the last, you know, 20 years. Did you have planned out how you were going to have Cotton move over the past 20 years, or that just he developed like any human being, you know, they change over time. He's developed slowly over time, but I do plan one or two books ahead, I do. Uh, that changes occasionally here and there, but I try to stay with it and have a, a sense of where I'm going with him one or two books ahead, ahead of it. But I didn't have a grand overall scheme. When I created him in the Templar Legacy, I wasn't arrogant enough to think that I was going to get to write 17 more books with this guy. I was just hoping to do one, and maybe we get lucky, we can do two. But he caught on, and he did good, and he's done well, and I hope he, I hope he lasts a long time. When, when you take subjects in the past, um, how is it you, um, you research them, and, and are you careful sometimes which way you go? I mean, the Templars, for instance, there's, there's always a lot of conspiracy, and I see that that's kind of something you like to involve in, in, in your story as well. Um, how do you how do you decide or draw the line, or do you just not even think about it and run with it? No, I, I draw a line. I don't like I don't like to stereotype these folks. The Templars, my Templars, and the Templar legacy are the historical Templars. They're not the Hollywood Templars. So you're going to read about what the Templars were really like, how they really lived, and how their rules and everything are there. Now, I have a modern-day sect of the Templars, but they live by the historical rules. I'm very careful about things. I don't like to stereotype it, like, I, you know, to, to say the Masons have taken over the world and all that. I would never do that. You know, they're, they're a social organization, and they don't bother us all, you know. And uh, they have, sure, they have secrets, and sure, they have all kinds of things, but every club has those. I'm, I, I don't like to, to, to take the the stereotypical stuff. I'm very careful about that. I like to use the real stuff. Do I change it up a little here and there? Yes, I do. I have to change it here because I'm writing a novel that's designed to entertain you. 
But I have a writer's note in the back of every one of my novels that tells you what's true and what's false. So when you're done reading the book, you know exactly where you stand, and I don't leave you with any false impressions. I, I think it's part of my job to not only entertain you, but to also inform you. But I want to inform you correctly. If I inform you incorrectly because I need to do that to entertain you, I need to tell you that. Uh, you know, when someone picks up, uh, you know, The Last Kingdom, or any of your books, and they read it, is there something other than the entertainment that you want them to get out of the book? No, really. That's the number one thing I want. I, the second thing I want is to inform you about maybe something from history that you don't know much about that you might want to go and learn more about. People always want to tell me I have a third thing that I'm trying to send a message or I'm trying to make a point or I'm trying to, you know, to embarrass somebody or I'm trying to – I'm not. I've, I've never written a novel with that in my mind in any shape, form, or fashion. No Illuminati uh, messages? No, that's oh, Come on, it's all, it's, we know it's in there. It's more uh, space alien, Steve. Or Illuminati, too. They don't bother a soul either. They, you know, they, they're taking over the whole universe. That's a and, bad rap. Yeah. I like they, your T-shirts. Yeah, they just, I don't want to do that. I don't have any point of that. If I use a secret society, I usually make it up. I usually, it's just completely made up, or or I use one that existed long ago that was up to a little no good back then, and then I just expand it to today. But I, I, I don't like to just, I mean, it's just, first off, it's cliche. Second off, it's been done to death. And third off, it's not very entertaining. Well, Steve, you say you have in the back of your book, I've seen them, the notes for the readers. How much do you think of your reader when you're putting together a book of such depth of historical information with a contemporary story. Very much I think about them a lot because they're the ones who read the novels and they want a mix of information and action. And mixing those two is the hardest challenge in my genre. It's very difficult. You can't have too much of one, too little of another. It's got to be a mix. And I'm not saying I'm great at mixing it or my, I mean, whatever. I'm just saying that I'm conscious of trying to get that mix as best I can and to keep that mixed together. Uh, my wife reads my novels first time out. She's the first one to do it. She has a very good eye for that. So she's very good at telling me if I've had too much of one or too little of another. So I'm, I'm very conscious of that to make sure I try to give the readers what they're, what they're looking for. Well, do you think the reader's uh, attention span, taste, whatever it is, has changed since you started writing these books decades ago? About the same, really. They, um, the reader, the modern reader of thrillers, attention span is very limited now. They, they, they want it quick, they want it fast, and they don't have a lot of patience with a lot of a lot of other stuff. They say, "Come on, let's go, give it to me," you know. But I will say this: you have to pay attention when you read a Steve Berry book. You do have to pay attention. You can't read it, put it down for two weeks, and come back and pick it up again. That, unless you've got a great memory. You may have a problem. but So you do have to pay attention when you read one of the books. There is that requirement there. But I try to write them where you can follow them easily. Uh, it's interesting, you know, all of writers have reviews. And, you know, you get Amazon reviews and everybody writes about your books and everyone has an opinion. For many years, for about the first eight novels or so, there was a consistent criticism of the books saying they were a little too complicated to follow, and that I had a hard time keeping up with things. 
when you hear that enough, you need to listen to that. And I did. And I changed the way I plotted the novels so that it would be easier to keep up with. Instead of using three stages where the action takes place, I went to two stages. Instead of five characters, I'd go to three or four point of view characters. I'd intermix the characters more, not keeping them as separate as they used to be, but mixing them together with one another. I learned from that, and over the last 14, 15 years, I've not had that criticism. So every once in a while, you, if you listen, you know, if you get a consistent criticism, you should pay attention to it. When, when you complete one of these books, how long does it take you to do one? Uh, 18 months from start to finish, but there's six months of overlap with the book before. As I'm writing the book before, I'm researching the next book so that when I'm finished that book, I'm ready to go the next day, and then it's 12 months of additional research and writing after that. So the whole process is 18 months start to finish. But at the end of it, now, so when, when it gets published and, and, and it gets out there, um, how do you think it changes you yourself? I don't know if it changes me. It's, it's, a, it's a sense of accomplishment that I did it. And it's done. And you hope people will like it because you don't have any idea if anyone's going to like it. I'm a commercial fiction writer. I write fiction that's sold commercially to readers all over the world. So it's my job to entertain those readers. So you're always a little anxious or you're actually accomplishing that goal. But it, it doesn't change me other than I finished another one. I did it. Now let's move on to the next one and let's go. I don't really have a lot of time to reflect because I have to do a book a year, and in order to do that, I have to stay on the schedule. To change it for you, do you is that why you put the standalones in? You bring in the the, the single characters, and was it Nick Lee? Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, you do something a little different. Uh, it's still the same, though. It's still action, history, secrets, conspiracies, but it's a different main character, different motivations, different historical element, different everything, and. Last year, the Omega was fun. We introduced Nick Lee. It was fun. People loved him. He did really good, and you'll probably see him again. This June, Luke Daniels, who's the younger guy in my Cotton Malone series, is getting his own book coming June 27th, first of three that I'm doing with the great thriller writer Grant Blackwood. Oh, yeah. Uh, this, was called, this was called The Ninth Man, and it deals with something from the Kennedy assassination that I think will surprise people. So it was fun to do a Luke book because he's a different guy, different character, different everything, a younger version of Malone who makes mistakes. It was, it was fun to change it up a little bit there. So those kinds of things keep it interesting for me, too. I guess you're able to just sit down and write them nine to five and have it all um, do it like a job. You're able to just turn it on, so to speak. It is a job. It is. It's not really nine to five, more like seven to 11 and then maybe 12 to three. 12 to 2. I go about six hours a day. That's about all my brain can do. And then I have to do research and all after that. But as far as writing goes, it's a job. And I need to do that five days a week. If I want to do it on the weekends, that's fine. But if I don't, that's okay too. But during the week, it doesn't matter whether I want to or not. You have to get in there. Writing is a discipline. And you have to find a discipline and stick to it. It's not an obsession. It's a discipline. And you have to stick to it. The number one job of a writer is to turn their manuscript in on time, and that's what you're supposed to do, and I've always done that. Have you ever thought of getting out of the international suspense thriller genre and writing the next to Kill a Mockingbird or something, or is this your... Is, It'd be is it, fun. Yeah, it would be great. Do you, do you want to? Would you? 
I would love to write uh, some other stuff, but unfortunately, you've dug a hole for yourself, see? You, you can't do it in lieu of Cotton Malone. You have to do it in addition to Cotton Malone because you have to keep that going, and you'll lose your readers if not. I, I would love to do a uh, – I have a suspense thriller that I wrote that I would love to get published. It's just a pure suspense thriller. It doesn't have a historical element to it. It's just, just – it's a Harlan Coben, David Baldacci, John Grisham kind of book. Um, would I do a legal thriller? I'm not saying I would never do it, but I might. I mean, I was a lawyer for 30 years. I wrote 15,000 words of a sci-fi book that I would love to finish. So, yeah, maybe one day I'll get to do that. What got you into writing? Did it, did it, you know, I said you were a lawyer for 30 years, so what, what made you uh, make that move? little voice in my head, little voice in my head that tells you to write, and I've learned that every single writer in the world has that little voice in their head, and you're born with that little voice, and that little voice gets louder and louder the older you get. I ignored it. In the 1980s, I, I, it was there, but I ignored it. And then in 1990, I listened to it. So I started writing a novel, and I did. I wrote it. took a year to write it. it uh, it's horrible, horrible thing. But over the next 12 years, I wrote eight manuscripts, and five went to New York houses. They were rejected 85 times. I made it the 86th time, 12 years after I started. So... For me, it was a long process, and the only thing that keeps you going during that time is the little voice in your head that says, keep going. And it doesn't say write a bestseller and sell a bunch of books. The little voice just says, I need you to write. I don't care how bad it is or how awful it is. I just need you to write, and I'll hush. If you don't, I'm going to keep nagging at you. And I still have that voice, and I'll have it till, I hope, forever. I know writers who have lost the little voice. The little voice has gone silent, and that's, that's the end. They're done. They're, they're finished. But for me, it's still there, so I'm still going strong. Does that little voice talk to you when you drive? All the time. <laughs> All the time. Turn right. Turn oh, right. Well, I didn't say that. It's plotting the novel because I'm constantly plotting a novel in my head. So that little voice is keeping that plotting process going along. Let's say, how do you hear your characters or, or write your characters? Is there an inner monologue or is there, is it like a movie or how do you describe that process? Well, I try to write visually. Uh, I've, some have said I write very descriptively so you can see things and feel it and touch it. And that's the way I, I like that. I, I, I like writing that way. Characters I know very well. I know Cotton. I know Cassiopeia. I know Stephanie. I know all my characters that I've had. I know them very well. Now, the bad guys in each book I have to meet fresh, and I have to learn them fresh, and they have to have fresh motivations and fresh everything. And after 22 bad guys, it's getting a little challenging, I will tell you. Uh, but you have to still sit down and figure that out as fresh as you can. Uh, it is characterization is something I have to work very hard on. That is not my strong suit. I'm a much better plotter. But characterization, I have to really work at. And I have to really apply myself to and pay very close attention to because, it's, as I said, it's not something that I'm a strong. I'm a much better plotter than I am a character characterization. Guy. You ever look back and say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that in that book. That really has messed me up now. Uh, I've had a couple of those little instances, yes, and, and, I'm, and I'm much more careful about that now. I don't lock myself in with that anymore. I keep it very general now. But there are a, a couple of instances along the way. I, for example, I wish Cotton had had brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, you know, it would have given me a little more personalization to work with some stuff with. Being an only child, 
kind of ran out of stuff pretty quick with him. You know, if he'd had a little more family. So Nick had a big family. When I created Nick, he had brothers, sisters, everybody. That that opens up a lot of story possibilities. Do you have some sort of way of keeping track of it for your series? I wish I did. I should have written all that stuff down. <laughs> I did not write it down. You and I. I did not write it down. And I have to go back and look. I'm with you. I do have to go back and look. And I have to be careful not to say something inconsistent. Thank goodness I haven't so far. But... I wish I had written down every time I gave Cotton something, something in his personality, something, something, something. I should have written them all down. So I had them in one place, but I don't. That is actually great advice for anybody. It is good advice, and, and I wish somebody had told me that way back then, but nobody did. So You know now. Uh, I should have kept a notebook of Cotton Malone. It would have been so much simpler. What makes a good book to you? What is it about a story or a book or a a novel that makes it great or good? Well, for a novel, it has to hold my attention. It's got to, it's got to grab me, bring me in, and keep me. Uh, I, need to, I, need to be, I need to be in it. I need to be in that story. I need to be part of that story. And that comes from your point of view characters, getting into their heads. For a nonfiction book, it needs to be informative, but also entertaining. Uh, you don't want to read a very heavy nonfiction book that just goes on and on and on. You want it to be entertaining, but also as informative as possible. So for me, I look for that in my nonfiction because I use three to four hundred sources for every novel. So I use a lot of nonfiction books that I go through. And I can tell you, a lot of them are really, really dull. <laughs> yeah. Al's nonfiction really, 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 <laughs> really, really dull. Put you to sleep kind of dull. But then there's some others that are just marvelous. It's like you're reading a novel, that's but you're reading mine. something that's true. Yeah. That's my. So, that's the warning well, section. I will say the older the book, the duller it is. The more modern stuff has learned to write quick, fast, and get it get to the point. So you're you're a plotter, Steve. Do you do you know how it's going to end then? Yes, because I have to have the ending for one simple reason: because you start a story as close to the end as possible. In order for me to start the story, I need to know how it's going to end. I don't need to know every detail, but I need to know generally what it is. Then I need to get as close to that moment as I can. And for me. That's between 24 and 72 hours. Uh, that's normally. I had one book that did two weeks, but there was a lot of travel in that book, long travel. I need to know generally the end so I know how where to start. Oh, that's interesting. That is um, interesting, yeah. When, when, you, when you're going back in time, too, I'd imagine, like with uh, King Ludwig and uh, Bavaria, 1886, you really have to immerse yourself in the times and the um, let's say, the customs and cultures of the people and um, pick that up in order to carry it through. I need, I need to know some of that. I don't need to know every detail because in a novel, that's going to bog down with too much information. But I do need to know what's he wearing so I can put you know a sentence of what he's got on. Uh, what did he eat? What was it like? What did he smell like? What did he look like? Ludwig, towards the end of his life, had no teeth. He lost every one of his teeth, so he, he had zero teeth in his mouth. That's an important fact. You need to know that. I learned that from reading first-hand accounts mainly, primary sources, but then there's some excellent secondary sources. And the older, the better here, by the way. The older sources are even better than the newer sources on, the, on this type of information. And I immerse myself in those, and I get those details so that 
when I do go and you meet Ludwig, and you're going to get several scenes in which Ludwig is, you know, what I call action proper. He's doing stuff. There's stuff happening in the scene with Ludwig. He needs to talk and act and move and be like Ludwig as closely as possible. One thing I always hate about reading stuff from the past with some with writers sometimes is they write it like it's today. They wouldn't act like that today. They wouldn't talk like that today. They wouldn't move like that today. Be different. It's a different different movement, different everything. So you need to be able to keep that as close as you can to what it was. Is that how you avoid that? Like the history purists saying, "Oh, Steve, it wouldn't have been." A horse, it would have been a, a, a cow or whatever it might be. I try. I, I I don't get it right all the time. They love to send me emails, tell me how stupid I am. And uh, but usually it's a it's a it's a minor fact here and there that I don't know. It just slipped by me, or I didn't get it right. It doesn't. I'm okay with that. I don't mind you telling me that because I want to fix it and get it right. But you don't have to tell me how stupid I am. You know, I did write the book 18 months. It took 112,000 words, 400 sources, and I only messed up one time. I mean, cut me a little, cut me a little slack, okay? Well, you can hunt them down, find out yeah. who they are. <laughs> yeah, they just—they're merciless at it, you know. And what I really love are the guys that write and said, "I found a typo on page 312, line eight. Yeah, <laughs> like. Like I did that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Then you send them yeah. saying, well, you find the the other two and you're on your way to win. Well, what I would tell them is I want you to get a manuscript. I want you to read it. I don't care how long you take. Read it as long as you want. Then give it to me and I will bet you anything you want. I'll find one mistake. Yeah, at least one mistake, probably more. They're badges of honor. Yeah, it just, it's just the way it is. But we, we like to know. And we fix them. We fix everything. But, you know, just be nice about it. Yeah, that's not always the way of the world these days online. No, it's not. And that, so do you have social media set up? Do you have a website? Like, where do people find Steve? You can find me at steveberry.org. Everything is there. Everything about me and the books and everything is there. And then I have a Facebook fan page, too. And that's the only two things I do. I don't do anything else. Those other mediums are not for me. And so our Facebook fan page keeps you alerted to a lot of stuff and a lot of cool stuff. We have a lot of history stuff on there. And then uh, steveberry.org has everything about the books and keeps you current on events and where I'm going and where I'll be. Do you like hearing Scott Brick read your words? Oh, I love hearing him. He's great. Yeah, I love hearing Scott. Uh, He's I picked him as my narrator, and he's done, uh, of my 22 books, he's done 19 of them. And he's great. I love him. Do you like hearing your words in general spoken back? Just Not really. <laughs> no, not really. Yeah. Uh, by, by then, I've read the book 50 times, and so I've kind of had enough of it. What I love to hear him do is when he does foreign words. Like when I use a foreign word or foreign something, I want to hear how he pronounces it, uh, because I'm terrible with, with that. I love. I, I listen to him a little bit because I want to just hear, get a little fl- flavor for it, and how he does it. But he does a he does a great job with my novel. So, wh- what do you like most about publishing? Wow, that's a tough. <laughs> I like telling stories, and I like entertaining people. That I like. It's extremely gratifying that people want to read your story and look forward to your story, and are disappointed when it's over, and they like it. You know, because you sat here in front of a machine for a year and a half, and you concocted this whole thing out of your brain. It didn't exist. You made it exist. And for them, it becomes real in a very real sense to them that it's real. And that, to me, 
is the most gratifying thing. I'm, I'm often asked, what's the best thing about writing a novel? The best thing is finishing it. The last when you finish it and you go, wow, I did it. I, I mean, there's to this day, there's a thrill when you write the last sentence. I, I did. Now, I'm not done. There's a lot of work to be done still. But you're done creating new stuff. New stuff's over. And it's, there's, a, there's a moment of great satisfaction. And I look forward to that each book. That's kind of what keeps me going to get to the end, to get to that. I can see it. When I get about a week away, I can see the end. And I, I, I haven't, you know, when you're writing a novel, you're basically making turns, turns, turns. You never see ahead very far. You only see a few feet ahead of yourself because you're constantly turning. But you know, towards the end, you get on a straightaway. And you can see the finish line. There it is. All I got to do is just go. And that is kind of fun. That is, that I do like. And then there's the marketing, and you got to talk to bozos like us. <laughs> yeah, go on tour. Well, then you have to sell books. So then you have to sell. Yeah. Selling books is different than writing books. But, but I don't mind the selling books either. I know that's part of the deal, and I've known that from day one, and, and I do my part. It's, it's, it's funny, but do things around you affect your writing and i can go as big as let's say pandemic and weird news and you know the last few years in america a lot of the behavior and stuff and things you hear you know conspiracies and all that stuff does that sort of get you in a mood or does it affect make you darker in a place or angry and does it get into your writing do you think or do you just tune it all out i tune it out it doesn't come into me at all it doesn't really affect me in one way or the other. I was a lawyer for 30 years. I saw people at their worst. I did 10,000 divorces. I did criminal defense work. I did all, I was in court three, four days every week. It was a lot. And, and it was a lot of noise coming at you all day long. I actually work better with a lot of noise. I don't like quiet because I learned to write in the hectic atmosphere of a law office. And I, I like that. I like, I don't mind being interrupted. I don't mind starting and stopping. I did that. That's the way I function. In fact, I actually work better when there's chaos around. But as far as the what's going on in the world, what's happening, no. The pandemic only allowed me to stay home and get ahead of myself. Luckily, I have I was two books ahead and ready to go, and I'd done all the research, so I, I didn't have to you know go anywhere. So you just make the best of what you got, and you get to sit down, and you get to work. Well, so where, where do you go from here? Like on a on a series like this, um, with with Cotton Malone, how do you know it's over, or do you? Oh, I, I don't want it ever to be over. I mean, Clive Cussler wrote Dirk Pitt to the day he died, and it's still going on after he's dead. And, you know, Dirk's been around now 50, 55 years. Cotton's only been around 17 years, so he's, he's young. He's just a kid. He's yeah. just a kid. And uh, so... I want it to keep going. Uh, Cotton will be back next year. It's a book called The Atlas Maneuver. It deals with something that I knew nothing about but was fascinated with, and that's Bitcoin. And so it's a novel. He's going to get caught up in something from World War II and Bitcoin and all, and that'll, that's already finished. There'll be two more Luke Daniels books after this one. So for the next three years, there's going to be two Steve Berry books a year. Uh, Cotton will be back in 2025. I'm writing that book now, and and hopefully 26 and 27 as well. He'll be back. So I stay, as I said, two to three years ahead of the reader. So I'm I'm looking down the road and want to keep going with this for a while. Steve, you've ever thought about uh, writing a book? Uh, Steve writes how to do it to help. I actually have thought about that, and I might actually do that one day. And I'm not quite there yet, but. 
I've taught about 3,000 writers around the country. We do that as part of our History Matters Foundation where we raise money for historic preservation. So I've taught a lot. And uh, so, yeah, I might do a writing book one day. I may very well do that, yes. Is History Matters up and running now after pandemic? It's coming back, yeah. Yeah, we, were, we didn't do anything in 2021 or 22. We're looking at uh, – we're putting together stuff for later this year and next year now, yes. We're getting back into it. Want to explain it to the, to the listener? Oh, what we did is uh, Elizabeth and I, my wife and I, we discovered years ago that, you know, there's just no money for historic preservation anywhere. And there's stuff all over this country that needs preserving, and and every town has something. So we help communities raise money for historic preservation. We'll go into a town and we'll do a gala or dinner or luncheon, meet and greet. We teach our writers workshops. All of that, you buy your way in with a contribution. All of that money goes to the project we're there to support. We don't charge to come. We pay our own way to come. So everything goes for that. We've done about 80, 90 projects, and we've raised about $3 million for various projects around the country. And so we don't do giant ones. We do small ones, and we help small things. We've done posters, books, buildings, cemeteries, raw land, uh, you name it flags. We've done all kinds of things that we've helped preserve. And we are looking for those now. If anyone has something, they can go to steveberry.org, go to the History Matters section, send us an email, and we'll see if we can come help you out. It's fantastic. There you go. Well, it's certainly been a pleasure, and uh, we've learned a lot. So we're going to be bestsellers now. That's the goal. That's always the goal. The main goal, people ask me all the time, what's your goal when you write? You know what the goal is? To keep doing it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. To keep doing it. To keep doing it. That's the goal. We just want to keep doing it. Well, and it sounds like you're going to keep on doing it. So we appreciate you being on the show. We'll have your website and everything up on ours as well. And your latest book, The Last Kingdom, uh, is out now. And our guest, Steve Berry, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.